For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Well, we've been studying this letter written almost 2,000 years ago by a guy named Paul to this group of Christian believers. Pretty, they were pretty young believers. They'd only been Christians for a couple of years. They were living in the ancient city of Corinth, hence the name 1 Corinthians. This is the first of two letters that we have that Paul wrote to this group of Corinthians. And they had problems, and one of the problems they had was false teaching. He's already addressed this false teaching at points earlier in the book, but tonight we're going to look at another false teaching, some false teaching with regard to the resurrection. He tells us the content of this false teaching. He said, why are some of you saying there'll be no resurrection of the dead? He's very clear. Um, What were they teaching? They were not teaching that there's no such thing as an afterlife. Pretty much everybody at this time believed there was some sort of an afterlife, but what, what they were denying was the physical nature to the afterlife. They were teaching the afterlife was a purely spiritual realm where we were just disembodied souls or spirits floating around. And um, what Paul is going to talk about here is he's going to talk about the resurrection of the body, a very important belief in the Judeo-Christian worldview, uh, that the afterlife is not some spiritual place where we're floating on clouds uh, as ghosts, but we get new bodies on a new remade earth. And what he's going to talk about, really, uh, for, for the whole chapter, is this issue of the resurrection bodies. And so Paul's going to counter with, he's first going to talk about the fact of Christ's bodily resurrection. That's where he's going to start to reason out in order to show that we will have resurrection bodies as well. We're actually going to spend most of our time tonight on number one. Number two, the importance of Christ's bodily resurrection. We'll talk about that a little bit as well. Number three, we're not even going to get to tonight. The nature of our future bodily resurrection. What is the afterlife going to be like? What will you be like in the afterlife? Pretty relevant topic that we just don't have time to get to tonight. This is almost a 60-verse chapter. So we're going to take a look at number one and number two, the fact of Christ's bodily resurrection and the importance of Christ's bodily resurrection. So what does he say? Let's just read here. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel, or literally the good news I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. And so he says, Corinthians, how could you guys deny the possibility of a future bodily resurrection for Christian believers? From the very beginning, as soon as I came to Corinth, what was I preaching to you? I was telling you the good news about the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the very early moments of your Christian life, what you placed your trust in was a message that Jesus Christ bodily rose from the dead. It wasn't just a ghost floating around. His actual, he got a new body that rose from, from the grave that was related to the old one, but different. He, sa- he says, this is what you've continued to believe in. He says, by this gospel, you're being saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. And so you're experiencing the ongoing effects of God's salvation. He's transforming you. He's giving you joy. He's giving you peace, the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you, otherwise you believed in vain. If you abandon this teaching about the resurrection, this bodily resurrection of Christ, um, it'll either mean that you'll be a real Christian that won't, that won't actually experience the benefits of your salvation, or it might mean that what you believed in the first place was pretty empty, and you really you didn't understand it. You didn't place your faith in the right thing. And so he goes on, and he, he tells them, what was it that I first preached to you? 
He says, what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. And so this language that he's using, or what I received, I passed on to you. This is the language that the rabbis would use. Um, where the rabbis, they would, they would kind of boil their teaching down into, into chunks that were as easily memorizable as possible to kind of get it down to the basics. And then they would teach this to their students. And the students would memorize these. Memorization was a very important part of the ancient world. They didn't have access to paper like we do. They definitely didn't have access to the electronic media that we have. And so their, their memories were sharper than ours. And so Paul says, what I received, I passed on to you. This is technical language. That he received a body of teaching. What he received really is a very early Christian creed. Sort of the most important things about Christianity boiled down into a nutshell. That's why he says this is of first importance. You know, what, when did he pass it on to them? Well, it would have been when he was at Corinth in 50 or 51 AD. That's about the time the first gospel, the gospel of Mark, was probably written down. But, you know, we're still almost 20 years after the death of Christ. But when did Paul receive this basic core creedal statement that we're going to read? He probably got it in the mid-30s AD. And so what we see here is a glimpse into maybe the earliest Christian teaching that we have in the original form in which it was delivered within a couple years after the death and resurrection of Christ. So for example, Gerd Ludemann, even skeptics will admit to this with this, this, this creedal statement here in 1 Corinthians 15. He's talking about this and he says, look, the elements in the tradition that Paul relates are to be dated to the first two years after the crucifixion of Jesus, not later than three years. So even someone, a skeptical atheist that doesn't have a real high respect for the Bible as the, as the inspired word of God would still say, this is extremely early, what we have here in 1 Corinthians. Michael Goulder, atheist Bible scholar, says it goes back at least to what Paul was taught when he was converted a couple of years after the crucifixion. And so, um, if you ever like watch specials about Jesus on the History Channel, and they're like, well, he started as Jesus the man, and then he became Christ the God. Um, there's not enough time here for any sort of evolution of a legend to develop. From the very earliest days, this is what they believed and what they taught about Jesus. And what was it that he, he received and passed on to them of first importance? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Yes, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life and he died for our sins. He didn't die for his sins even though he was crucified as a criminal. No, he died for our sins. He died so that you would not have to spend eternity separated from God. He took the punishment you deserved. This is the good news of Christianity. That guilt that we feel, Jesus took that guilt upon himself. And he offers us cleansing and he offers us a relationship with, with the Father. That Christ died for our sins. You know, this, the death and the crucifixion of Christ, it's recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. These are the four different complementary stories about the life of Christ at the beginning of our New Testaments. Also, the crucifixion of Christ, constantly referenced by the rest of the New Testament. But it's even admitted by the enemies of Christianity, ancient enemies and modern enemies, that Jesus Christ did, was indeed crucified, just like the, the friends of Jesus said that he was. For example, Cornelius Tacitus, first century Roman historian, says, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus. Just like it says in the gospel accounts, the extreme penalty is, 
is the crucifixion. This was the worst way they could possibly die. They didn't even like to say the word crucifixion because it was so gross and vulgar and savage. Josephus says, many people from among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. And so, so Josephus does come out and say it, but also he's not a Christian. He's a Jewish Roman historian. And he says, it was Pilate who had Jesus crucified. What about the Babylonian Talmud, a collection of teachings recorded from the first through the fifth centuries AD? Uh, this, this is Jewish teaching, not believers in Christ at all. What do they say about Jesus and his death? They say on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hanged. And when they say hanged, you know, they didn't have hanging like we have with the rope around the neck. It was hanged on a tree, hanged on the cross. That's how they describe it in a lot of places in the New Testament. Lucian of Samosata, a second century Greek satirist, He's um, telling this uh, story about this, this, this Christian, and he's just mocking this dude. And he says, you know, the Christians, you know, worship a man to this day who was crucified. Can you believe it? He just can't believe how ridiculous this is, you know, uh, that you would, you would worship someone who was crucified. What about a modern-day critic? John Dominic Croshan, atheist, even he agrees the fact that Jesus was crucified is as sure as anything historical can ever be, since both Josephus and Tacitus agree with the Christian accounts on at least that basic fact. Bart Ehrman, another well-known critic, what does he say? One of the most certain facts of history is that Jesus was crucified on orders of the Roman prefect of Judea, Pontius Pilate. And so, you know, it's not just like, you know, if, if you're going to court and you were looking for someone to defend your story, you know, you might be able to get friends of yours who are friendly to you. Maybe you could get them to lie for you. But to get your enemies to lie for you as well, well, that's what we have here. You know, Jesus not only has his buddies, you know, let's say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, confirming this, this story that Paul is saying here, but he's also got... You know, Lucian, he's got Josephus, he's got Tacitus, he's got the Babylonian Talmud, all agreeing this is what happened. Jesus was crucified. He died for our sins, Paul says. So that was their earliest interpretation. It was a theological interpretation of his death. And he says it was according to the scriptures. And so we have the, not just people who saw it happen, people who wrote about it at the time, but you have predictions hundreds of years in advance. How about this one from the book of Isaiah, perhaps the most remarkable? It, it predicts this mysterious figure, and it, it's kind of cloaked in mystery, some of these predictions in the Old Testament. Not clear until after it happened, the death and resurrection of the Messiah. But what Isaiah says is, he's speaking, God is speaking through him, and God says, see, my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. So he's got this guy, he calls my servant, and he says, he's gonna get the highest place of honor. Many were amazed when they saw him because he had such a high place of honor. Well, kind of. They're amazed because his face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human. From his appearance, one would scarcely know he's a man. And so, so how does this honor fit with the fact that something horrible has happened to him? So when you look on him, you almost want to look away because what you see is so disgusting, you wonder, is that really even human anymore? The suffering that this servant has gone through. And yet it says he will sprinkle many nations. This is the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system where a, an animal was killed and then the blood was sprinkled 
onto various people or things to cleanse them. It says that his, his death, his suffering, will result in him somehow being able to sprinkle not just the Jewish nation, but many nations, all the nations of the world. In fact, kings will stand speechless in his presence. That's how great this guy is going to be. This is so strange. It seems like a contradictory. Every sentence seems more contradictory than the previous. This great suffering and yet kings standing before him in his courtroom, in his throne room. Who is this guy? Well, he was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised. We did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. You actually see that on the cross. You see people mocking Jesus as a criminal, thinking, oh, you're the son of God. Why don't you save yourself? What they didn't realize, it's, it's precisely because he was the son of God that he was not going to save himself. The whole reason he came into the world was to suffer and die for the sins of the people who were standing there mocking him and subjecting him to the greatest torture a human being can experience. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins, beaten so we could be whole, whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away from God. We've left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. How unfair that is, and yet he voluntarily did this. This is the reason for which he came, to suffer and die for our sins. Led like a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Another prediction of the, the trial of Christ. He's very quiet, very willing to go to his death. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. Oh yes, he died. Struck down for the rebellion of my people. And so we see the prediction of the death of this mysterious figure who would turn out to be Jesus Christ. We see elements of his crucifixion described here. Paul says, yeah, according to the scriptures. God doesn't just try to put a positive spin on things after the fact. No, 700 BC is when this was written. We've got copies of this in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are carbon dated to before the time of Christ. This is not something made up by Christians. This is something that is in the Jewish scriptures. that is in our Bibles today. Predictions of the death of Christ. And Paul says he, was, he, he, was, he, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Paul says, my message also was that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He says it again. Buried and raised. Yes, the tomb was empty. One of the real um, striking facts of the resurrection stories, the empty tomb. You know, the empty tomb, it appears in all four gospels. Um, Jesus was buried, it says, in a new tomb by two members of the Sanhedrin. Actually names the guys. These guys were members of the highest elite ruling class in Jewish society. You know, if the, if the disciples are going to make something up, why would they pick two known members of the political establishment? You pick somebody obscure. Jesus was going to get the treatment that a criminal normally would not get. 
And uh, these guys took a great risk to come and ask for the body so they can bury it in a tomb in which no one had been laid. Well, the tomb was empty before they put Jesus in, and then it was empty again a couple of days later. In fact, it was empty in spite of the giant stone they rolled in front of it. In fact, the, the first visitors to the tomb were wondering, how are we going to roll that stone out of the way? Uh, they, they were going to try to um, do a little bit more work of anointing the body with spices. They had, to, they had to hurry because it was almost the Sabbath when Jesus was put into the tomb, and they couldn't work on the Sabbath. And yet there was a huge stone that had been rolled away. There was a seal on the stone to prevent people from tampering with it. And there was a, 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 a squadron of guards stationed there. And they had to guard that body or pay for it with their own lives. And yet in spite of all that, the tomb was empty. There's a surprising lack of tomb veneration as well. You know, wouldn't this be like the holiest site in Christianity, the place that Jesus was buried, the cross and resurrection? And yet in 300 AD or so, when a lot more people started becoming quote-unquote Christians, because the emperor converted around that time, they were like, where was he buried? And all the Christians were like, I don't know. <laughs> and they sort of had to go and try to find the spot. Uh, this, this is not what you see in religion, and yet the early Christians, they, they didn't really care where the tomb was because he wasn't there anymore. The whole point was, he's not there, he is risen. There's also the fact that the empty tomb was discovered by women, a very embarrassing detail. Women's testimony was not accepted in a court of law. Uh, if you're going to make up a story that you want to be believed, this is not a detail you would put in there. Uh, in fact, there, there's um, a debate in the 100s AD between Origen and a guy named Celsus, and Celsus goes after this very point. Look at what he says. He says, uh, so after Jesus' death, he rose again and showed the marks of his punishment and how his hands had been pierced. And then he says, but who saw this? A hysterical female, he says. As you say, you admit, a hysterical female is the one who discovered this and probably some other one of those who were deluded by the same sorcery. Delusional, hysterical women, Celsus says. And that's how women were viewed back then. But... The disciples are so devoted to truth, they didn't change the story to make it sell better. No, they said what really happened. And I think it's pretty cool that actually that's how God arranged it, that the women were the first ones to find the empty tomb. And I think it just accords with the dignity given to women throughout the Gospels and the New Testament. In fact, there's actually, there's a lot of embarrassing details in these these resurrection accounts, how, how dense the disciples were, how fearful they were, how bumbling they were. Um, it's just not the sort of story you'd make up if you're trying to become the respected leaders of a new religion. They were honest about all their shortcomings. And what you see is Christ really, really shine and get the glory in these, in these stories. This also was according to the scriptures. We can keep reading that same passage in Isaiah, for example. Isaiah says no one cared he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But then it says he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And yet that's exactly what happened to Jesus. Died as a criminal, put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him, to cause him grief. Yes, Yahweh, the Father, this was his good plan to crush this servant. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. Wait, I thought he just died a couple of verses ago. 
Now he, without descendants, now he has descendants. He'll enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Wait, he died, but now he's enjoying a long life? Cut off, life ended too soon and a long life. No descendants, but now he has descendants. Well, how many sons and daughters of God have come because of what Jesus did on the cross? When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And so we see the resurrection of Christ predicted. The dying servant who's alive now. Cut off too soon, living a long life. It says that he appeared to Cephas. That's the Aramaic name for Peter, which uh, shows you how, how old this tradition is. One of the marks of authenticity. This might be the event referred to in Luke 24, 34. Yes, he rose from the grave and appeared to Cephas. We don't have the, the narrative describing this meeting with Peter, although I bet it was pretty interesting because Peter had just denied Christ three times. This might be the one... There's a couple meetings with Peter, but this one, um, on the very, the very Easter Sunday, these guys show up and they're like, look, he's already appeared to, to Peter. And uh, Peter's another guy who really changes. Something happened between Good Friday and Easter Sunday that turned him into a different guy. You see him cowering, uh, unwilling to even admit he was Christ's disciple to a, a young girl, a servant girl, in the courtyard of the high priest. And then you look at him in Acts 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and he's staring down the entire Jewish ruling body, fearless, declaring the good news of the resurrection of Christ and his determination to continue to follow Christ no matter what they have to say about it. It says, then he appeared to the 12. All these are resurrection appearances. This was not a ghost. This was Jesus with a physical body. This might be the one on the evening of the resurrection, Sunday night. We see that narrated in Luke 24, 36. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of them are still living, though some have fallen asleep. This might be the Great Commission we read in Matthew 18. Sorry, 28, 18 through 20. This might be one we don't have record of. Uh, it's not clear, but they knew about it. And um, the, uh, what Paul is saying here is, look, there's a lot of people you can go ask about this. In fact, the, the apologetic for the resurrection would have been a lot more persuasive when there were still hundreds of people alive who had met the risen Lord personally. There's also a, a hallucination theory that says, well, maybe... The disciples didn't really, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, but they had this hallucination. They wanted Jesus to be alive so badly, they started imagining he was there. I mean, I guess that might work for one person, but 500 people all at the same time, imagining that they see Jesus bodily resurrected, that he's there in their midst, I don't think so. It says, then he appeared to James, and this is not James the apostle, but there was, Jesus had a brother named James. Did you know Jesus' family pretty much rejected him during his life? In Matthew 3.19, Mark, sorry, Mark 3.19, his family shows up and they're like, look, give us Jesus. He's crazy. We'll take him home. We're sorry. <laughs> In John 7, his brothers are making fun of him. They're like, ah, oh, you going to go down to the festival? Reveal yourself, oh great one? Jesus is like, nah. 
You guys go ahead without me. He didn't need that all the way to Jerusalem. (laughs) And so James, we've got no evidence that he believed in Christ even right up to the moment of Christ's crucifixion. But then, in Acts chapter 1, it's describing a prayer meeting a couple of weeks after the resurrection of Christ, and Mary and all the brothers of Christ are there. Jesus appeared to James, it says. He probably appeared to the other guys, too. I mean, his brother Jude also wrote a book of the Bible, probably commissioned as an apostle, authorized to write scripture there as well. Big change in James's life. He becomes a huge leader in the early church, mentioned multiple times in the book of Acts, playing a very prominent role, and also mentioned in some of the epistles as well. Man, how would you like that? You know, your super disappointing brother, older brother, who thinks he's like the son of God or something. You know, he finally dies a criminal's death, and then suddenly, a week later, there he is appearing to you and saying, what do you think of me now? You still think I'm crazy? Well, they, um, looks like his family came, came to faith in Christ. And it's, it's interesting, too, because James, we read about him from early church historians. Uh, they said he was really known for his prayer life. In fact, he, he was down on his knees praying so much, they, they started calling him camel knees because he, he got big calluses on his knees. And um, it's true. I didn't make that up. But I sort of wonder, I, I don't know if you've ever had somebody, um, somebody close to you pass away and you're like, man, I wish I could still talk with them. Well, James may have felt that and then realized he could. He spent a lot of time talking with his brother for the rest of his life. He lived until the early 60s and then he was, he was martyred. He was killed for his faith. Then Jesus appeared to all the apostles. Maybe this is the one in the book of Acts right before he ascends into heaven. There were other appearances than these. This, isn't, this is not an exhaustive list, but it sure does show a lot of resurrection appearances. And Paul says this was very early that we, we communicated this very clearly to you. Early in the Christian faith and also early in your own faith, Corinthians. This is what I told you. And as you read these appearance accounts, you realize no one expected a bodily, physical resurrection. You know, when Jesus predicts that he's going to die and rise again during his life, the disciples are just confused. And they're like, I wonder what he means by die and rise again. Then they're heartbroken when he dies. They scatter. Then he shows up again and they're baffled. They don't even believe it at first. You'd think they'd be like, okay, we wondered when you were going to come and show up here. No, this was not the placebo effect where they just knew this was going to happen and they they got themselves to believe it. You know, he has to eat fish for them to show them I'm I'm not a ghost. You know, and that's, that's the amazing thing about Christianity. Jesus rises from the dead and he's like, and now for my next trick, I will eat a fish. <laughs> Thomas, he's not there for one of the first times Jesus shows up to the disciples and he's like, I don't believe you guys. I'm sorry, I'm not getting my hopes up. He's like, I tell you what, I'll believe you when I can stick my finger in the holes in his body. And wouldn't you know it, they're hanging out a week later and Jesus, Thomas looks up and Jesus is standing there. He's like, you want the side of the hand first, Thomas. <laughs> and Thomas becomes a believer. 
No precedent for this in Judaism or pagan religion. Yeah, this, it wasn't like the Old Testament taught this super clearly. You know, there's a couple resuscitations in the Old Testament where somebody comes back to life, but then they die again later. There's a few in the ministry of Christ, not many. There's, there's a teaching that at the very end of the age, there will be a, a resurrection of all the dead. But the thought that a Messiah would die or rise again, that was just not a thing in Judaism. They were not expecting this. This caught them completely by surprise. There's also no precedent in pagan religion. And maybe some of you have read... Um, people try to claim, oh, Christianity, they just copied off of Osiris or Hercules or Zeus or whoever. Maybe you've seen the movie Zeitgeist, which was, got, was pretty popular there for a while, still sort of is. And um, they try to argue that, well, you know, there was these other, these other saviors before Christ, and they had all the same characteristics, and Christianity just borrowed from them and came up with theirs. Here's the problem. If, if you actually look into those claims, you'll just find there's, there's nothing to them. There may be superficial similarities, uh, but here's Bart Ehrman, super skeptical. And he says, look, the majority of scholars agree there's no unambiguous evidence that any pagans prior to Christianity believed in dying and rising gods. There's cases where you have really remarkable similarities, but what's happening there is the earliest source documents for the one the Christians are supposedly copying, the earliest source doesn't appear till after the time of Christ. Second, third, fourth century AD. And so it, it's, there's probably cases where other religions copied Christianity. But as Ehrman says, none where it goes the other way around. Or Matt Dillahunty, founder of the Atheist Experience, you'd think he would be into a movie like Zeitgeist, would be into this theory. He says, no. Zeitgeist is unscholarly, sophomoric, horribly flawed oversimplification like all conspiracy theories, they combine a few facts, focus on correlations, and build an intriguing story that seems to fit the pieces together nicely, provided you don't actually dig below the surface to find out where they might have gone wrong. There actually used to be this awesome website that went through every possible, it's called the copycat um, uh, argument that Christianity copied off other religions. There was a website called kingdavid8.net or something like that, that that went through every single one of these and uh, I was trying to find it a, a month ago or so, and it's, it's, it's not around anymore, so I don't know what happened to it. But uh, there are other resources on this. McDowell has a whole chapter on this in their new book, just released this year, The, the Evidence That Demands a Verdict, completely revised. They got a whole chapter in their book on the copycat allegations and why they're simply not true. So nobody expected this, and yet these Jewish disciples suddenly devoted their lives to this new faith. A faith that says, that, that says dietary laws, not a thing anymore. Sabbath observance, not a thing anymore. Um, Old Testament, rituals, priesthood, temple, not a thing anymore. And yet you see these guys, it, they're bringing the highest ethical code the world has ever known. They're not liars. Very devout is the picture you see of them. Very faithful to God. Devoting their lives to this new faith. Christianity explodes onto the scene starting in Jerusalem very shortly after the crucifixion. You know, it's not the sort of religion that sort of evolved over hundreds and hundreds of years. You see it go from 500 to a million in the first century AD. 
And so, you know, what could explain the explosion of Christianity onto the, especially when it's an, it's, it's an illegal religion, its followers are persecuted, its, it's, its founder was crucified. Also, the, disciples, the apostles suffered greatly for their belief that they had seen the risen Lord. Almost all of them were killed for that belief. And John, who wasn't martyred for it, suffered greatly in exile at the end of his life. Um, and, and this is different from just a typical martyr, you know, where somebody, they just, they believe in, you know, this religion so much that they're willing to die for it. This is not, they believe in a religion so much that they'll die for it. This is, they believed so firmly that they saw the risen Lord that they were willing to die for that. And they were in a unique position to do that. They suffered incredibly for their belief that they had seen the risen Lord. Gary Habermas he says, it seems clear the disciples were utterly persuaded the risen Jesus had appeared to them. The data are strong enough that this is granted by virtually all critical scholars. What would explain all of them? This is not a conspiracy. They wouldn't have been able to hold it together that long. They didn't gain anything from this. What they, what they decided to do was follow in their master's footsteps, pick up their cross and follow him. And then Paul says... And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. So this is the final capital A apostle authorized to write scripture. Paul says, Christ appeared to me. And we read about this in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus. Talk about a turnaround life. The apostle Paul, wealthy, influential, Sanhedrin member, Pharisee. He had about as good as you can get it. He was the best of the best. Mr. Jerusalem, 32 AD, okay. <laughs> Killing Christians. He, he, was so, he was so zealous for God that he persecuted the church. He would drag people off, throw them in jail. He would cast his vote to put them to death. And then suddenly, in an instant in time, that completely changed. And everybody's like, this one who was killing Christians is now preaching the faith he once persecuted. He shows back up in Jerusalem. He's like, hey, I'm a Christian now. The apostles wouldn't even go meet with him. They thought it was a trap. <laughs> it wasn't. It was that he had met the risen Lord like they had. Completely, completely turned around his life. From the least of the apostles, and I don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. It'd be hard to forget. Murder, the kind of things he did, the kind of stuff he pulled. He really had to stand firm on the grace of God, but he realized I, it wasn't because I deserved this. No, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Remember, part of what he's doing is defending his apostleship here to the Corinthians. But he says, look, whether it's I or they, me or the rest of the apostles, this is what we preach. This is what you believed. These are the facts of the resurrection. This is the evidence for the resurrection, some of it. And then he goes on to the importance of Christ's resurrection. He says, but tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there'll be no resurrection of the dead? For if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. 
Yeah, this thought of a, re- a physical resurrection was so odious to Greek thinkers. This is what got Paul laughed out of Athens, if you've read the book of Acts. But he says, well, if, if the dead aren't raised, what's that say about Christ? What's that say about the very earliest beliefs and teachings of the apostles? What's it say about their own eyewitness testimony of so many different people that met a physically, bodily resurrected Christ? If that's impossible, then he's not raised. And if he's not been raised, that has pretty significant implications. All our preaching is useless because that's the foundation. That's, that's first things first. That's the, the item of first importance. Your faith is useless because the item of first importance that I delivered to you is not even true. And for Christianity, it's not like, well, it's good if it makes you feel good. No, what's important is that it's true and that our faith is founded on the truth. We apostles, we'd be liars. We said that God raised Christ from the grave. We'd be lying to you. Do you realize what you're saying about me, Paul says, when you deny the possibility of a bodily resurrection and all these other people you followed as well? Peter, Apollo, all those guys. He says, that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. And then he says it again. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. Don't you see the implications? And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless. And you're still guilty in your sins. If Christ died for sins and was raised to newness of life and conquered death, if that's not true, then... You guys are still guilty. Your faith is useless. That didn't do anything. You put faith in a criminal. You put faith in a loser who didn't do what he said he was going to do. And everyone who's died believing in Christ, they're lost. Your Christian friends, family members who've died, you're never going to see them again. They're just decomposing in the ground. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're to be pitied more than anyone in the world. Yes, this is life without the afterlife. This is life without Christ who has conquered death and guaranteed us eternity with him. You know, is it true? Like Stephen Hawking says, the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate-sized planet among 100 billion galaxies that we are so insignificant. Or is the human race very significant? made in the image of God, so important that God the Son, even though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the very form of of, of humans. And he came down and he died on a cross. He says, no, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and He's the first of a great harvest of all who have died, which introduces the subject for next week, which we're not going to get into this week. Let's just draw two conclusions. One, what do you think of all these lines of evidence for the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ? The empty tomb, the hundreds of witnesses, the embarrassing details, the explosion of Christianity from the very spot where its founder was just crucified. The willingness of the apostles to hold to their testimony that they had seen the risen Lord right, right to, through great suffering right down to their graves. The changed lives that we see in these, in these story after story of these people we meet in our Bibles. James, Peter, Paul, the rest of the apostles. 
What do you think? You know, I mean, any one of these is not gonna be enough to be like this airtight case, but as you start adding layer upon layer, line upon line of evidence, the case gets stronger and stronger. And as William Lane Craig says, for as long as the existence of God is even possible, an event being caused by God cannot be ruled out. Yeah, if, we shouldn't be opposed to a miracle like the resurrection if there really is a God, and if you spell God with a capital G. And he says, to be sure, the historian ought first to seek natural causes. We don't just jump to the supernatural. But when no natural cause can be found that plausibly accounts for the data, and a supernatural hypothesis presents itself, as part of the historical context in which the event occurred, then the rational alternative would seem to be to choose the supernatural explanation. I agree. The other question I have for you is this. Do you want to be resurrected someday? The question is not will you die, but when will you die? And what then? What's next? What's your hope? What, what will be you at that point? Jesus says, I've been there. I've conquered death. I know the way out. I know why you die. Human, humans were not meant to die. They were meant, they're eternal beings. We die because we've gone our own way. We've wandered from the paths of God. And yet God says, I've laid the sins of, of all of you on my son, pierced for your transgressions. And it's by his wounds that you can be healed. Do you want to be resurrected someday? Come to Christ. Because if this is right, he's the only way. And that is the first half of 1 Corinthians 13. I think that's uh, good enough. Let's pray. Thanks, God, for all the cool evidence that's uh, available to us. Thanks for all the eyewitnesses who saw Christ on earth after his death and resurrection. Thank you for the historical records you've preserved for us, Lord, both friendly and hostile. Um, thank you for um, your great plan, Lord, for how you, in your brilliance, your wisdom, you, you concealed it ahead of time and then revealed it in your son. And um, I thank you that we don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Yeah. But we can know where we're going to go when we die we can know that we are going to a better place, a relational place, Lord, a place where we're finally fully with you and the desires of our hearts are met. Yeah. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.